G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. Good to be chatting with you on the podcast again, as always. Good to be with you again, Rowan. Now, I'm excited for today's episode because we've called it Banishing Burnout, and Burnout is something that I imagine a lot of people out there are going to be experiencing, whether it's occupational burnout or whether it's burnout in different ways related to COVID-19. So just give us a little bit of a rundown. What are we going to be talking about today? Okay, so burnout is a term that we use when we're getting stress symptoms to do with the demands on us outstripping our resources. So all of us are going to have a certain threshold that we could manage of stress. And once we get above that threshold, then we're going to tend to get, say, physical symptoms, problem with aches, pains, sleep problems. There might be worry. We might be losing interest in things that we're doing. And we'll talk about that later on in terms of our individual stress signature. But basically, it's when the demands on us outstrip our resources and we get stress reactions. Well, I think that concept of demands and resources is something that's really interesting. And that is because it does relate to more than just, say, work stress. Look, I even think of myself and, say, like watching the news and stuff recently, I reckon there's an element of burnout in just trying to keep up to date with all of the the information that's going on. So I suppose one of the things that I'm interested in today in having a bit more of a look at burnout before today's podcast was just recognising the degree to which it does relate to so many other things that so many of us are going to be dealing with at the moment. Yes, and it's partly to do with energy, isn't it? Like a number of things are going to deplete our energy more than others. As you say, if we're overexposed to the news, if we have extra demands on us because we have to adjust to changed circumstances, and as you say, with COVID, that brings some extra kind of demands or challenges with it itself. So on top of our usual work or family roles or other things that we're looking to do, that extra adaptation draws on our resources further and can add to further stress. Well, it was something for me that was very interesting to learn quite recently, I must admit, but the difference between time management and energy management, because there is a huge difference there, because like I was someone who, like I thought it was sort of all right with time management, but maybe my energy management wasn't as good. And look, that's one thing that probably COVID has showed me really, is, is you really do need to be aware of your energy management just as much, if not more, than your time management. Uh, Yes, because our energy, it's a finite resource, isn't it? And one of the best things that we can do for our energy, as we've talked about before, is physical exercise. That actually enlarges the pie that we can divide in different ways. Yes, but it's worth prioritising how we spend our time or considering how we draw on our energy because we will tend to be more depleted through the day and after we have had to deal with various kind of demands. Well, when I was thinking about this during the week, I came up with this analogy that I almost think of for burnout in terms of, it's a little bit like a sponge. Burnout's a little bit like a sponge. And the more the sponge kind of fills up, it gets to this stage where it can't necessarily take on any more water. And so everything else that it takes on kind of just leaks out the bottom. And regardless of what we do in the short term, it's not that we're necessarily able to make the sponge bigger, but I suppose to address burnout, we've really got to look for a way to wring out the sponge. Yes, and look, one of the things is, I like that analogy, 
One of the things is picking up when maybe the sponge is getting heavier and get a sense of when we might reach that point where it starts to spill over because at that point, people are going to show the different kind of stress signs. And common ones early on would be people finding it hard to concentrate or being more irritable or having difficulty with sleep. And so we can see how those ones themselves can have the problems. As people are having sleep problems, they've got less energy, so the sponge can fill up more. If people are more irritable, it can lead to relationship difficulties that then in turn adds to the demands that we face. If we're finding it harder to concentrate, we might not be as efficient at getting our tasks done, so they might build up further. So that's where it can be a vicious cycle. So I like your idea of picking up when the sponge is filling up and then starting to spill out because when it starts to spill out, it's worth acting sooner rather than later or you tend to get compounding problems, even becoming more withdrawn from other people, finding less meaning in what you do. The kind of symptoms, if you like, tend to expand. Well, I think the other part of that analogy as well is that you don't necessarily want a dry sponge. (laughs) You're not necessarily going to be cleaning up much with a dry sponge. So you do also want to be able to take on a little bit of water and you also do want to be slightly adaptable in terms of taking on more water, being able to reduce some water at times. So we're not necessarily saying that sort of stress is bad and all stress leads to burnout, but I quite like that analogy because I think it gets across that idea that it literally is just once we get past that threshold that burnout begins. It's not as if stress in itself is a bad thing. Yes, I think that's a very important point that Stress can be normal, life involves adjustments and demands and our various roles will have challenges to them, whether they be family roles or whether they be work roles. Anything that we do that's worthwhile is likely to have some kind of challenge and that's why sometimes people use the term eustress, EU stress or normal stress compared to distress. It's when it becomes distress, when it's excessive, that there's the problem. Well, I think it also relates to the themes maybe of chaos and order that we've spoken about a bit on the podcast before, that when we're trying to perform optimally, we're almost trying to ride between those two themes of chaos and order, but potentially burnout is a little bit when we get a little bit towards the chaos side of things too much. Yes, and look, actually, I might mention as well where the term stress comes from. Technically, it's an engineering term that relates to the pressures or forces on a bridge, Now the bridge is still well able to manage with those forces or pressures and just like with many of our roles in life or many of the demands that we have, we are equipped broadly to manage them. It's just that if things get out of balance or if suddenly there are changes that mean that there are more excessive demands, it's recognising when that's happening, picking it up sooner rather than later and looking to address it because if we keep on going for quite some time where the stresses are excessive for what we're well equipped to manage – that's when things can fall down. And again, it comes back to that idea of demands and resources because as you mentioned that, I suppose we apply the theme of burnout to everyone going through COVID at the moment. It can be quite hard to look ahead and recognise that potentially there's still a fair bit more time to go. But I think that idea of demands and resources is really helpful because it gives us a way to, I suppose, manipulate the situation without looking at it going, all right, we're stuck inside for however long and Melbourne's going back into lockdown sort of thing. 
Yes, and I think that being aware of when there are those extra challenges, like you're mentioning with COVID, if we can just cut back on our demands a little bit, if we're in two minds about whether we take on something extra or not, then maybe not taking it on. Allowing that extra room for adaptation because otherwise we are likely to reach that threshold sooner rather than later. And if we do find ourselves in that situation where we are going through a prolonged period of stress, it's my understanding that you can actually have almost like a, an inflammation response within the body. Is that true? Yes. So there are a number of chronic stressful circumstances that can tend to lead to an enhanced inflammation response, which is where mind and body link and problems with, say, mental stress can carry over to physical difficulties. And so some examples where you can get more of an inflammation response are with chronic trauma reactions. Also, any form of ongoing repeated stress, of which one example is people being in an extended caring role. It's been found that long-term carers can be at extra risk of an inflammation response which might relate to what we could call caregiver burnout. And that might be when people are so focused on looking to attend to the needs of others that they might have less time they're making for themselves, not noticing so much the impact on themselves, becoming more withdrawn, feeling an excessive level of responsibility for someone else. That can be a very difficult circumstance to be in. Well, I imagine as well, one of the tough things about that is like in psychology, for example, I believe you have the concept of like clinical detachment. So obviously you don't necessarily want to be in a situation where you're emotionally investing in every single one of your clients. But if you're in a caregiver role, there's something inherent within that that is quite emotional because of the role that you're taking for that person. So I imagine to do with caregivers, it can almost be hard because that line between relational and occupational is blurred a little bit. Yes, well, there's an interesting pattern that comes up there with health professionals that you're getting to with a kind of detachment that can come in. Funnily enough, health professionals can be more at risk of developing problems with burnout if they take too much responsibility for those that they care for. If people get into what we call a rescuing versus helping pattern, taking excessive responsibility for others, like for example, if they're an early career psychologist and they're very worried about how they're helping people, taking extra responsibility, then that can lead people to be more at risk of being burnt out. And when people are burnt out in the health professions, one of the ways that shows up is feeling more distant from those that they care for. So this can be a paradoxical kind of thing. If people take too much responsibility for others, then they could be at risk of becoming exhausted and more distant from those that they care for. But as you say, more difficult with a carer role. People might be in a situation where they don't have so many other alternatives for other people to assist in a particular situation. And in those circumstances, it's still important that people can do what they can to sometimes prioritise their own well-being, sometimes get time aside for themselves, look to draw on whatever support that they can, but also to be realistic about what expectations they have on themselves when they're caring for someone else. And I assume as well that that relates to, say, parents in the community at the moment and other members of the community who potentially are looking after other people. I imagine as people try and help others navigate through some of the extra adjustment at the moment, potentially if we find ourselves almost slipping a little bit too far into that rescuing role with too many people, 
we could potentially overexert ourselves. Yes, and I think that's a very important point, say, for parents who've done homeschooling recently, say, with lockdown. Like, that's an extra demand and makes it much more difficult for people in their, say, parenting and nurturing roles. And I think that when people do have extra demands like that, it's important to be able to pull back in some other area or cut yourself some slack or maybe not be too perfectionistic in how you go about those extra roles and doing what you can. And that's where I think Doing burnout as a podcast topic today is incredibly relevant because often you hear burnout relating to like more work-related stresses in that situation. But as we've just described, it's going to relate to so many things with life the way that it is at the moment. And I suppose just to go back to that analogy, if we look at what we're trying to do today, it's a way to kind of wring out that sponge and also recognise when it's maybe taking on too much water as well. Yes, so we've broadened the theme, looking at it as dealing with stress generally. And when I think about how we go about dealing with stress, I think this burnout model, the demands versus resources, is the way that we can best think about it and apply that to a range of other situations when there are demands on us. So why is it important to recognise burnout? Because obviously it's going to be a negative thing for us when we go through it, but I can think back to a story that one of my friends told me once about when he was working in an engineering firm as an intern in Singapore. And basically he was putting in quite long days, sort of 10-hour days, and the local Singaporeans would kind of tell him, you know, it's time to go home, mate, sort of head off at about 6 o'clock in the evening. And they'd often stay later themselves. And I remember him saying that they had this initiative going in their workplace where they had posters up all over the building and the posters basically said, Every three months, go and have dinner with your family. So it was my understanding that the local Singaporean people were putting in sort of 16-hour days all year round sort of thing. So they needed to have a workplace initiative to remind people to go and have four dinners a year with their family. So in many ways, Singapore is known as a sort of place that's good for doing business. And I imagine part of that is because of how hard everyone works. So... Why is it important to recognise burnout rather than, for example, taking the Singaporean model and just making sure everyone works as hard as they can all the time? Well, I think this partly relates to uh, the PERMA model of positive psychology that we've talked about, P-E-R-M-A. They're five different pillars of well-being, but sometimes they trade off against each other. There's positive affect. There's engagement in our roles in life. There's our relationships our sense of meaning and achievement. And I think that Singapore example that you mentioned there, it highlights the importance of achievement and maybe also engagement in that work role. But it's hard to imagine how that wouldn't have some kind of impact on people's positive pleasure and well-being in different ways. And also you'd think it'd have to impact negatively on relationships, like one time with a family for a meal every three months, you know, to us would seem ridiculous and would seem to be such a compromise. So I think one of the things is there can be a trade-off between these areas and if we get over-caught up in, say, work or achievement in any particular area, it can actually interfere with these other areas. So it's more about balance. But also at a practical level, what we find in a clinical setting like a therapy practice is a number of people who present with depression, their difficulties started as burnout. 
They were continuing on their usual patterns of work. There might have been some increase in demands for a period of time that was gradually building up over a period of time. Then the person was maybe feeling more stressed, then a little bit more disengaged in some way. And then what tends to happen after that is people think that they're not doing a good job. That's the sequence that often burnout takes. But part of that can then be overlapping with depression. People could be having the problems with sleep and concentration, so some of the stress exhaustion symptoms, the lesser engagement with work, people could be, say, more withdrawn, and then developing negative thoughts, thinking that you're not doing a good job. That's where burnout symptoms can overlap with depression, and so it's really important to pick it up early and do something then, because once someone becomes depressed, then they're likely to be much less efficient be really caught in a vicious cycle and mood go down and their physical functioning go down as well. Well, as you say, I think like many things, it is very important to find balance in this situation. And because of course, some stress is a good thing, like you say. And I remember hearing a little while ago about this situation in America, which I suppose to me maybe highlights a situation where being stress averse can go a little bit too far and I'd be really interested to get some of your thoughts on this because I think potentially we're seeing some sort of problems leading from this way of thinking but there was an assistant professor called Lindsay Shepard who was teaching at a university in America called Wilfrid Laurier University and basically for one of her classes she showed a Jordan Peterson video who's a Canadian psychologist who's come up a little bit on the podcast before but basically he has some quite different views to what was I suppose more widely accepted at that time and in showing I suppose both sides of the debate to that class she was then reprimanded by the university and she decided to take in a recorder with her to that meeting where she was receiving her I suppose, dressing down in some ways. And what the board of the university said to her, that in presenting both sides of the debate, that she'd created a toxic environment for some students. And, like, this is in a university, which you'd think would be the number one place in the world to debate some of these ideas. But I wonder if, in this university in particular, there's been a little bit of a movement recently which has been a bit too much towards being stress averse and I wonder if that's potentially going to impact on people later on down the line when they may be less able to deal with stress. Yes that sounds like a real problem to me. I think if we see conflict in itself as being toxic or if we see stress in itself as being toxic that's a real problem. Over and above the challenge then there's this perception that conflict or stress will do us harm. Whereas as we've talked about, there's some positive things about stress. Moderate stress leads to neuroplasticity, being able sometimes to manage with being challenged, to view things in a different way. I think allowing for a level of conflict and stress is important. It's more how we manage it. And that sounds to me like an avoidant way. At an institutional level, they were looking to deal with stress and conflict. And ultimately, that's not going to tend to help people learn or adapt. Later on, if people are in different kinds of work environments or whatever, they're going to come across conflict. They're going to come across stress in different ways. It's more how we look to manage it. We don't have to be mollycoddled to deal with stress or conflict. And so yeah, I would see that as a real problem, that situation. Well, like many things, I think there's some lessons that can be learned from sport here as well. And 
And I know in sport, you've got this concept of the inverted U arousal curve. And basically what that says is the more kind of aroused and kind of, you know, ready to go you are, the better your performance is going to be to a point. And then after that point, it's not as if the more kind of up and about you get, the better you're going to perform. Well, actually, your performance is going to taper off after that and you're going to end up doing worse. So I wonder if burnout's a little bit like that in this situation where like it's good to have a bit of stress, it increases your performance, but then once you get past that point or that threshold, well, then it doesn't necessarily help you anymore. Yes, I think that's a good analogy for burnout as well. So if people are in a work situation and if they think, oh, if I only work another five or six hours a week, I'll get more done and then I'll keep on adding more time and more time. Well, what will tend to happen is people will not be producing more at a certain point people might have spent more time but their output will be leveling off and beyond a certain point if people are becoming exhausted their sleep is being affected they're not concentrating so well then people's performance will come down and this is actually relevant to burnout related depression when people are depressed but it's been because of burnout just by pulling back on the demands then people's functioning will tend to improve often within a couple of weeks So when people are depressed, it might be months before people feel that they're working on something and getting some reprieve, feeling that there's some thaw in their depression and they can be making real progress. Well, with burnout-related depression, when people cut back the demands, cut back the number of hours, maybe take a brief holiday, find ways of drawing on extra resources, extra help from other people, but basically cutting back on the demands, then you can see changes quite quickly. Sleep improving, concentration improving, and then people get that positive effect rather than a vicious cycle. People get the positive benefit of seeing this change happening. And so that's one reason why we look for burnout when people are depressed. When you identify the pattern, it's often quicker to alleviate. And so how can we tell when we're approaching burnout? Because if I go back to that sponge analogy, if you look at a sponge that's got water in it, you're not necessarily able to tell if it's, you know, for example, 80% full or 50% full. Imagine burnout's a little bit the same. So what are some of the major signs of burnout approaching? Okay, well, this relates to what we call your stress signature, meaning that each of us have certain characteristic reactions we'll have, stress reactions when we're more mildly stressed, moderately stressed and severely stressed. And actually, I'll just mention this idea comes from work, comes from therapy in the psychosis field. It used to be found with people with schizophrenia, they are more likely to have a relapse if their stress got to a certain level. So what they found is that they could really reduce the number of admissions for psychosis if they help people with schizophrenia learn to identify their stress signature. What if they started, for example, to have some disruption to their sleep, a little bit more difficulty with concentration? Then if their stress got to a more moderate level, they might hear voices, start to have some delusional thinking, notice that would be picking up. And then when people were more severely stressed, then they might be barely able to function in certain ways, have more severe delusions, and the hallucinations could be, again, more frequent. So the idea was people had to pick up the subtle signs early. Now, we can apply that to managing stress generally ourselves and each of us are going to have certain characteristic reactions. There'll be physical symptoms. For many people, that might be 
heart pounding a little bit more, maybe feeling some tightness in the shoulders or the jaw or the stomach. There might be the mental symptoms or cognitive symptoms like problems with concentration, uh, more negative thoughts, maybe feeling a little bit more spaced out at times. Then there'll be the emotional symptoms, which often would include irritability, maybe low mood, losing joy with things. We might become more withdrawn. There might be a few more arguments with our partner, for example. And then maybe some sense of a loss of meaning. So spiritual symptoms, feeling a little bit empty. But the thing is, these different reactions will have their own sequence. And if we pick up early what the signs are, So if we tend to feel some discomfort in our stomach or have distracting negative thoughts or feel a bit more irritable, to recognise those are actually helpful signs that things are getting out of balance. We can make those signs a bit like brake warning lights on a car or something like that. They're an indication that tells us to respond. And if we respond early, we're less likely to have the compounding problems with, say, sleep, low mood, less risk of it going on to depression and the like. So the thing is, the more aware we are of our stress signature, the earlier we can intervene. Well, I find that concept of spiritual stress really interesting because it's something that you don't often hear about. But I recognise with many people in my generation, for example, I think there's potentially a bit more existential stress than has previously been certainly obvious in previous generations. So it reminds me of a quote that I heard from Friedrich Nietzsche one time that said, he who has a why to live for can bear any how. And I've heard it slightly change one time to those who live for the why need not worry about the how. And I think that's almost the version that I prefer because it's not necessarily that people can bear anything. It's that it's more that there will always be a way through if they're really motivated to find the end result. Like if we go back to that concept that we spoke about last week of motivation equals importance plus confidence, well, maybe burnout can rob us a little bit of that importance idea which can affect our overall motivation, which is one of the things that can lead to being a little bit less engaged with work. Yes, I think that's a very astute observation. And when we look at that idea of a spiritual dimension, we're largely looking at meaning, how people find meaning in things. And I think that's been underemphasized in psychology, but it's gradually becoming researched more in positive psychology, partly through that PERMA model and M relating to meaning. And so many people might not be religious, but they might still have a sense of a larger philosophy in life. They might even believe in a consciousness of some sort, even if they're not religious, or they might have the feeling that the universe operates in certain ways as though it has a larger kind of consciousness of its own. If we can feel connected to something larger than ourselves, but that also means if we can feel connected to, if you like, the larger values in life, being able to care about other people, use our character strengths, use our abilities in the service of other people, something larger than ourselves, that's what tends to add to that sense of meaning. And people can tolerate a lot more stress. People can manage with a lot more demands when they have that sense of meaning and relevance. Whereas if people feel that their jobs or their work is not so meaningful, then that makes it much more stressful for people. I remember hearing one time a marketing principle, actually, which are, you know, most of them are 
absolutely rubbish, most of the marketing principles that you come across. But this one was in business, you don't necessarily buy the drill bit, you buy the hole. So like, for example, if I think of a bus driver, well, driving around his bus could be the drill bit. But that's not actually what a bus driver does. A bus driver enables people to go from point A to point B who may not have access to other transport. They enable people to visit each other. They enable people to go and get their groceries, all this sort of stuff. But if we were to look at driving a bus on almost a superficial level, it can almost take away from the deeper, I suppose, meaning in that role. And so I wonder in this situation, if one of the things that can almost help us find that meaning is look for the whole in what our role is. Yes, I think that's a very good point. And also looking at how it benefits other people, how what we do ties in with the wider community. And then we're less likely to get caught up in things like cynicism. So cynicism is a kind of negativity that people are more likely to feel if they lose a sense of meaning in their work and lose sight of how it might make an impact. So yeah, thinking of the larger picture makes a lot of sense. And so what can we do if we are burnt out? Because I imagine in previous times, maybe before COVID, we've all got our certain ways of maybe relaxing and releasing some tension. But for me, for example, that was sport, which was sort of taken away by COVID. So in many ways, I've found it a lot harder to kind of switch off recently. So if we were to look at it kind of broadly, what are some ways to really wring out the sponge? Well, one of the first things is look to cut back on the demands by prioritising. So what are the most important or almost meaningful things for us to keep going? And even there, can we cut some corners in those things? Also, in bolstering our resources, can we call on extra help? Maybe we can delegate a little bit more. Maybe we can let someone know we're really struggling at the moment. We're feeling overwhelmed. Could we get some help in some extra ways to reduce the burden? But then I'd say it comes back to our self-care skills, which includes whatever recharges our batteries. And I think some of the main things for that would be physical exercise. That would be one of the number one things. Anything that helps our sleep, such as having a wind-down time in the evening. I think it really helps if people have some kind of practice like relaxation or yoga or meditation or mindfulness exercises. In other words, some strategy which means that people are practicing repeatedly bringing down their arousal level. I think in time, many of us are going to have some strategy like that as just part of our general health and well-being. And then other things that we know recharge our batteries, such as making time to catch up with friends. It might be that we enjoy watching movies or that there are some other kind of activities that are like a hobby or a way we can spend some leisure. I think part of it is building in that time where we can recharge our batteries alongside cutting back on demands. Well, I've heard that analogy used that in order to best split logs, you've got to spend some time sharpening the saw. And I think that relates a little bit here. And I think one thing that I remember learning, which made a huge difference for me, was the concept of active recovery. And I remember it being back in the day that you might have sort of a day off and you wouldn't necessarily plan what you were going to do. And you might end up spending a little bit too much time on your bum and you're sort of watching TV and you kind of get to the end of that day and it sort of slipped by and you didn't necessarily get as much out of it as you would have hoped. Whereas if you sort of spend a day in, it could even be that I'm going to spend three hours watching TV and then I'm going to go for a walk and then I'm going to get a bite to eat. But if you can almost allot recovery time and be, I suppose, a bit more deliberate 
in recovering during that time, if that makes sense. Like I know for me anyway, that is something that makes a huge difference rather than just having time off. Yes, and it's having your own way where you're recognising that you're recharging your battery. So it's not a matter for someone else to say that you should be doing it this way or that way. It's noticing what works for us. Because then if we can use our own strategies, then we can recognise that we're doing something to help ourselves feel that things are coming back more into balance. And I think as well that we're living in a pretty good time in terms of with such an almost shift towards being more entrepreneurial in recent times, obviously things like the nine to five work day are a little bit less common than they used to be. So like I come across things all the time which are really interesting in terms of getting the best out of ourselves in slightly unorthodox ways. And I remember reading a book one time called When by a guy Daniel Pink. And in that book, he talks about the concept of either night owls or early birds. And so some people might be a night owl, so they're actually going to be most productive at night. You hear of people kind of staying up all night to get their study done or write books or create art. Whereas early birds, for example, are going to go better if they get up in the morning. And one thing that I find with burnout is if you can almost give yourself license to kind of take the pressure off a little bit and kind of just observe. And if you come across something like that, like this book, When talks about your circadian rhythm so you can almost give yourself a little bit of a project to work out what that is for you a little bit and you can almost take on again that idea of having a positive project instead of kind of just feeling weighed down by the burnout. Yes and I think then it's that observation that you're describing and then being honest with ourselves as well. So if we find things that make a difference to us and we observe that and we notice how it helps, that's great to factor it into our coping strengths. But by the same token, sometimes we can get sucked in to other ways that maybe aren't working so well. And so one of the more common ways that people might use, which is an unhelpful strategy for dealing with burnout, is using alcohol. And we know that there's been an increase of that through the COVID era. But what tends to happen, I can think of one fellow who used alcohol excessively to help him self-medicate from the stresses of a very, very demanding and high-level job. But what tended to happen is it meant that he was waking up during the night and not being able to get back to sleep with worry. And we talked about the problem with alcohol and what's called the liver hour. And when people have excessive alcohol, they're going to tend to wake up between 2 and 3 in the morning because what happens is the blood rushes to the liver at that time and there's a heavier demand for the liver to process it if people have had excess alcohol or rich food and it tends to wake people up with a jolt if people have had excess alcohol and then if people then wake up and then start to worry about work or the demands they have, then that can become a vicious cycle. So that's one way that people might think that there's something which is helping them, but if they step back and be honest, they can recognise there is a downside to it. It's affecting sleep. But when we do work out our own kind of coping strategies and our own formula for recharging our batteries, and then we've observed and noticed what does work and what doesn't work so well, that will be the best way for each of us. And I think as well, if we can work out a formula to, I suppose, recognise how full our sponge is as well, to go back to that analogy there, is like I know for me, like when I'm feeling a little bit more on the side of burnt out, like my car, for example, I'll put my hand up, 
it's sometimes gets a little bit messy <laughs> at times. And but I know that like almost that clutter that's in the car potentially reflects the clutter that's going on in my mind a little bit. Bedrooms are a little bit the same, maybe not as much as it used to be when I was younger, but at the same time, we can almost have that mental clutter, which I think can be almost made tangible. And sometimes that's almost the first sign for me, which helps me recognize, oh, hold on, things are kind of starting to build up a little bit now. Yes, and there can be little subtle signs. I notice that if I'm getting a little bit burnt out, then I might, say, walk from one room to another and be less inclined to even switch the lights off or something as subtle as that. In a sense, not follow the usual kind of order or routines, be a little bit more distractible in some ways. So one of the things that's helpful about picking up the subtle signs is it helps us to start to address it earlier. And one of the advantages of reflecting on times when we have become burnt out is to look back and think, well, what was it about the nature of the demands or how much we took on that led us to get to that point? So I could recognise in my work life that when I worked a certain number of hours and kept that up for a certain number of weeks, after four or five weeks I could anticipate that that was likely to impact on my sleep, maybe irritability, concentration, but certainly enjoyment of work. And so you learn over a period of time what might be some indicators in terms of the demands that you're taking on that might reach the filling up of the sponge. So sometimes we might anticipate a little bit that way by factoring in what we're taking on. And just to finish up here, Dad, I remember you telling me one time about the balloons versus the weights strategy. And I think that might be a nice way to finish up. So would you be able to explain a little bit about the balloons versus the weights? Okay, well, if we think of the opposite of burnout... What would that be? It's when we're really engaged in what we're doing and when we're really energised. So part of that, just say if we think of a work role, what are the balloons? What gives us uplift? What are the things that are inspiring, that give us joy, that give us satisfaction? And for us, it might be partly our relationship with colleagues. It might be a creative aspect of our work. It might be we really enjoy the knowledge and the skills that we gain through our work. It might be even the setting that we work in. Some people work outside and they love that. So when it boils down to it, the more that we can notice the things that give us joy, that relates partly to the why that you were raising before, then that's the uplift. But when we look at the weights, they're the things that drag us down. There might be certain aspects of routine that can be boring. There might be paperwork. Many people in their work are going to have something like 10 or 15% of their time or their roles aren't going to give them so much joy. And that's fair enough. It might be almost like a necessary evil. But if we can minimise some of the weights or at least contain them, whereas we can enhance the balloons, if you like, the uplift, partly by noticing it and appreciating it, then that gets back also to the idea of using our character strengths. If we recognise how we draw on our top character strengths, it might be persistence, love of knowledge, creativity, kindness. When we can draw on these kind of character strengths that come naturally to us, that will help us have the uplift. And the more we have an uplift, the balloons, relative to the weights, that will also help prevent burnout. And as always, we will put all of our burnout resources up on the website at chrismackey.com.au slash podcast. So please feel free to check out those ones there. And yeah, Dad, thanks for talking with me today. I've enjoyed it. Look forward to next time, Rowan.